This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. Monday this week, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council met and they issued a joint statement. They said, we affirm that nuclear war cannot be won and it must never be fought. Now, you would think with a statement like that, that what they're leading towards is perhaps the, the doing away with nuclear weapons. But no. The, the next statement that they issued was that as nuclear war would have far-reaching consequences, we also affirm that nuclear weapons, for as long as they continue to exist, should serve defensive purposes, deter aggression, and prevent war. There is a form of power that is so total and so complete that it is able to keep other world powers at bay. So it is in this life as the Christian life. We all have to admit that this life, that this world has a draw upon us. It, it, it heightens our affections. We get excited about so many things. And often they're very good things. It's good to be excited about your work. That's one of the good gifts that God gives us to enjoy our work. It's good to enjoy your family. It's good to enjoy those who are your friends. It's good to enjoy all of the good things that God gives you. The problem comes when they become an entrapment to this world. We know that, that the Bible asks us, it tells us to hold on to this world in a very light way. There have been times in Israel's history where Israel would face great shame. The, the Babylonian exile was one of them where this great and mighty nation of God, who had enjoyed all of the benefits of knowing God, who had experienced great wealth and great power, because of their own sin, because of their own unfaithfulness to the covenant of God, they were driven away from Israel. Even to a point where the temple itself, the, the meeting place between man and God, was destroyed and the Spirit of God left the place. But in that moment, God did not leave his people without comfort. Rather, in those times where Israel was, was made nothing, when it was laid waste, rather what he did is he came in and he said, you've missed everything. Because you have treated my covenant as common, because you have treated me as common, you have, you have an attachment to this world. And he used those moments when, when Israel was decimated, when they couldn't possibly have any attachment, to remind them where their loyalty should lie. To remind them of, of what it truly was to, to know God and to love God and to experience God. And he would come to them in exile. And, he would say, and, and the, the prophets would, would see great visions and then they would go and they would relay what it is that they saw. Isaiah 1, 6, 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah, 
died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and his train filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The other way that God would communicate this through the prophets is to simply give the people of uh, his people, the people of God, an understanding of, of what it was like to be in the throne room. Imagine being a part of one of the ancient wonders of the world. Babylon was incredible. It was wealthy beyond comparison. And then God says to them, it's nothing. In Ezekiel 1, he says, In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kerub River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, I was in the fifth year of the exile of the king Jehoahim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Beaz, and the, and the, by the Kerub River in the land of Babylon. There in the hands of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire what, I looked, what looked like four living creatures. In the appearance, their form was like human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, gleaming like bronished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of, of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead and did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of them had four faces of a human being. On the right side, each one had the face of a lion. On the, face, on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had, three face, had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spread out outwards. Each wing touched the other creature on the other side. And each had two wings covering its bodies. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. Without turning as they went. Their appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, like torches. Fire moved back and forth amongst the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it, and the creatures sped backwards and forth like flashings of lightning. What a picture. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel wanted the people of God to realize that there was a power beyond all other powers. These were the creatures that were in the throne room of God. This isn't God. These were merely those who stood in his midst. They were nothing. And so if you're going to have an attachment to anything, what, what they're saying is, is, is remember that God is so much greater than anything else that's going on in this world. If your loyalties are going to lie anywhere, you must have your loyalties lie with the Almighty One, the Majestic One, the Beautiful One. Let it be with him. Well, by the time we come to Revelation, you still have people in exile. 
These are Christians who were in exile. Sure, they, they were citizens of the particular area they were in, Asia Minor. But they understood that this home was not theirs. The world had rejected them. They were despising them. Because they refused to worship Caesar, because they refused to follow the practices of this world, they were rejected and they were outcasts and they were poor. And they were despised and they were persecuted and they were killed. What could ever make a person want to remain faithful in that scenario? The visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, of course. Whenever God's people were troubled, the prophets would stand up and say, you do not see as it really is. You can only see this life. You can only see the here and the now, but there's something so much greater. That's why you're going to go through this. That's why you're going to persist in this. That's why you're going to remain faithful and you're going to endure. You're going to endure because the throne room of God is so much better than anything that you could lose in the here and now. That's the point of all of this. The supreme power of God is seen in his glory. And it's a power that surpasses all other powers in this world. And for that power, God is rightly due worship. But more than that, so is Jesus. Between these two chapters, you'll see that, that these, these four living creatures worship God the Father. And the Spirit is always there. And the elders, when the, when the four living creatures worship, they respond in kind. And they worship also. It's right that the Father is worshipped in that way. But more than that, Jesus receives the exact same worship. In chapter 4 it reads, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like the emeralds encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders they were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, and pearls of light of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in the front of the throne, there was like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. You see the similarities between Ezekiel and our passage here today, it's the same message. It's not that John is crafting things to appear like Ezekiel. Rather, what we're seeing here is that it's the same heaven. It's the same God. It's, it's the same response. He's taken into the very throne room of God and, and all of these beautiful things appear before him. 
The elders are interesting. The elders themselves, we're not given a lot of explanation as to what they are or who they are. Some perhaps think they might be 24 angels. Others think that these elders themselves might be martyred saints who have already gone to heaven, who sit around the throne room of God. But what we can't miss is the description. Previously, in Revelation 2.10, in the letter to Smyrna, we're told that the faithful are given a victor's crown. In Revelation 3.5, in the letter to Sardis, we're told that the victors are dressed in white. In Revelation 3.21, in the, in the letter to Laodicea, the victors are given the right to sit with Jesus on thrones. At the very least, then, we know that, that these 24 elders are a representative council of the victorious ones. They are a representative of, of all of the saints. They are given all of the prizes. Have a look again. Verse 4, surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Jesus has given these people right to sit on, their, on his throne. They are victorious. They have overcome the world and they have received their prize. I don't know if you've noticed, but Australia does not have many sacred spaces to us Westerners. One place that I have been comes close, though, and that's the War Museum in Canberra. Nobody needs to know, nobody needs to be told how to act there. Everyone walks around and they're struck by the solemnness of the place. That's what it was like to be in the throne room of God, except so much more. Struck by the solemnness of the place, of the majesty of the place. And these 24 elders exist victoriously there. But what's interesting is that they do not need to be told how to act there. Rather, they follow the example of the living creatures. We're told that in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What are these four living creatures? That's, that's a big question that a lot of people want to know. Well, 
in Ezekiel, he seems to come to a realization. In chapter 10, verses 15 through 17, he realizes that these four living creatures are cherubim. These are the angels that exist in the throne room of God. The idea of their eyes all around them, even under their wings, represents the very fact that they see everything. Nothing gets by them. But what it is that they long to behold is the glory of God. Imagine being faced by one of these creatures. What would be your reaction? They're far more mighty than us, far more glorious than us. And yet, these creatures realize that their duty, their job, their responsibility and their joy is to worship God. And in their worship, in their praise, the elders join in. And so here you have these, these victorious elders, these ones who represent perhaps the greatest of humanity, who have been given their victor crowns by Jesus Christ, the right to sit and to rule and to reign. Here you have these majestic beasts, these, these creatures, these living creatures, these angels. And they praise God. God does not need our worship. He lives in the praise and the worship of those who see him and adore him. Right now, God is being worshipped. And we get to join in. Like sitting down to a feast, you see the food, you smell the food, you look around at the other people doing the same, but you cannot help but partake in the food. That's what it's like to be in the throne room of God. You get to partake in it. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Your delight is made full and complete. It's the inheritance of the saints. That's the prize. The victor's prize is laid at the feet of God. Last week I said, we, we made the point about the fact that that which you're willing to expend for something else shows the value of the other thing. If you take a $100 bill and you exchange it for something else, you're saying, I value that other thing more than, I, that more than the $100 bill. The victors rightly see that the crown, that the throne, that the white robe means nothing. It's meaningless. It's just something that's been given to them so that they can cast it at the feet of God. How small are we? Compared to the victors, compared to the four living creatures, we are small. The glory that we will have, the glory that will be ours is the same. We will one day, those of us who remain faithful, those who stand the test of time, those who go through the trial, we will one day receive everything that the victors receive. And that's what John is reminding us. What John is ultimately reminding us all of, what he was reminding his original audience of, is it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. 
no matter what it is that you've got to go through, to have God is worth it. So worth it that when you receive your golden crown, you will cast it at his feet. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul got it. And I think Paul is perhaps one of the most qualified people that have ever walked the earth to say that. If I said that to you, my, my sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory of a bee, you're like, you've had it pretty good, dude. But not Paul. Paul knew what it was to suffer. John knew what it was to suffer. Do not forget that by now, history tells us that John is, is, is exiled in Patmos. He's been taken away from everybody who he loves and everybody who loves him. But only after he survived being thrown into a vat of oil, John knew what it was to suffer. But he also knew why it was worth it. He's saying it doesn't matter what it is that you need to go through. Don't lose sight. That's your goal. The moment that you're looking at, the moment that you're thinking about this life, it all seems pointless. But if you get a true reality of that which rightly belongs to you, not because you are worthy of it, but because Jesus Christ has won it for you, you will be able to go through the fires of temptation. I want to go a step further than even Paul here. I want to say that that which is most glorious in the experience of this life will pale into insignificance when compared to what Christ has to offer. The problem is not that we love pleasure too much. We have too small thoughts of pleasure. My desire for you is that you would seek your pleasure. But make sure that in the seeking of the pleasure, and make sure in the seeking of your happiness and your joy, that that cannot be taken from you. If your happiness is based on the things of this world, it will be taken from you. I guarantee it. But not if it's based in the throne room of God. If, if it's based there, it can't be taken because nobody is more powerful than God. It's like the nuclear weapon of your life. If you want to die to self, you need something more powerful than yourself to keep you at bay. For the vast majority of it, it's not going to be outside temptation that's going to take you away from God. Rather, it's going to be from within you. How do you remain faithful to God? It's not through gritting your teeth and bearing it. It doesn't work. Very few of us are good enough for that. Rather, it's to get a true picture of who God is and all of the happiness, joy, and pleasure that he has on offer. And to realize that pleasure in this life is fleeting. That's how you both sustain internal pressure and external pressure. You fight sin by looking at the glory of God. John Piper says that the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. 
Holiness, ultimately, in language, just simply means something that is set apart. All kinds of things were called holy in Scripture. Cups, lampstands, priests, tents, buildings, forks, spoons. In this way, they were holy because they were set apart from common use. But I don't think that that's a sufficient definition for God. The definition that most fits God in his holiness is that he is complete in and of himself. He's perfect. He needs nothing. It's very hard for us to get our minds around that. And yet, when God comes and shows himself, it's always apparent. When God takes that who he is, and makes it public, that's his glory. It's like the radiance of the sun. We get to experience the light, we get to experience the heat, but we could never come close to the actual source of it. Rather, the glory and the heat, is, is that's what is coming from the sun. We get a small picture of the glory in these words. And every one of us, our rightful response in here and now is worship. Hear what the living elders say again. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. For by your will they were created and have their being. God is worthy simply because of who he is. He's worthy of worship simply because of who he is. And so is Jesus. In chapter 5, it says, When I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll, written on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. I reckon John was a pretty tough guy. I don't think he's one that's necessarily given to tears. And yet, there's a frustration here that wellows up within him. Why is John so emotional? Why is it that when he realizes that there is nobody in either heaven, think about the living creatures, think about the victorious elders... Nobody in all of heaven, nobody on the earth, nobody under the earth is worthy to open the scroll that sits in the Father's right hand. Why is he frustrated? Why does he weep? What will become apparent as we look at the opening of these seals is that inside of it is the unraveling of history. There's no mistake here that... The elders step forwards and says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
the root of Jesse has triumphed. Because the elder is quoting scripture. The line of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And the idea, the promise that, that there would come up one through David one day comes from Isaiah 11.1. 1. The reason why John is weeping and the elder is quoting scripture are combined. Ultimately, the elder is saying the one who has the right to open the scroll is the one who fulfills the promises of God. John rightly recognizes that there is still so much to come. He knows that history still needs to unfold. He's seen the martyrdom that's going on. He's seen the tragedy. He's seen the difficulty that the churches face. That's why he's writing the letter. And when he realizes that the scroll must be unraveled so that history can take place, he's frustrated because he wants history to be set right. Who has the ability to set history right? The elder tells us it's the one who fulfills the promises up until that point. Jesus is the one. Now, both of these metaphors, there's some mixing of metaphors that's about to come. Both of these metaphors are of, of one who would triumph in royal victory. We recently finished Genesis. Most of you will know that this, this prophecy about the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is that, that one day through Judah would come the one that all of his other brothers would bow the knee to. The kingship would come through Judah. And again, in the midst of persecution of Israel, in the midst of exile, God makes this promise. I haven't forgotten. I'm still going to send the king. He's going to come. He's going to be the root of Jesse. He's going to come from David. I haven't forgotten that. I'm still holding faithful to my covenant. And so Jesus is this, this royal, victorious figure who has fulfilled finally these promises. He's the victorious king. He is the one who has the right to open the scroll of God. There is nobody else in all of history who has ever been more important than Jesus. Let's just stop for a moment and think, what is the meaning of life? In a word, it is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life according to John 14, 6. Everything that has ever been created exists through him and for him, according to Colossians 1, 16. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He is the rightful reigning king who conquers all of his enemies. And then we see this. Verse 6. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes and the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Stop there for a moment. There's a lot of debate that goes on 
around atonement theory. I'm glad if you're not full of that debate. But what was it primarily that Jesus did on the cross? Was it primarily what he did on the cross? Was it that he, he overcome, he became victorious and, and he, he was the conquering king? Or was it primarily that he atoned for our sins? Well, I want to say that it's both. But there's one that is more foundational. The reason why Jesus Christ is the victorious king, the reason why he ruled on the cross and overcome everything that was evil within this world is because he is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world. For those theological among you, there is no Christus Victor without penal substitutionary atonement. See the mixed metaphors. He is both. But the reason why he is able to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David is because he is the lamb who has been slain. Now, it's a weird lamb. It has seven horns. The lamb represents Jesus Christ and horns often, if you're familiar with your Old Testament analogies, represents royal power, strength, and displays itself in military might. And seven represents completeness. Now, this seven spirits that comes up again and again and again, we've already looked at this. To forget, this is more rightly understood to be the sevenfold spirit, the completeness of the spirit of God. He exists with the Father. He exists with Jesus. He is the one who is empowering the work that both would do. This is a triune act. God on display. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the one who has the right. He holds within his right hand the course of history. Jesus is the one who rightly comes and he takes it from him. And the Spirit is there, and he goes out into all of the world. We shouldn't miss that the same worship that's given to the Father is given to the Son. In fact, in verse 8, you get to see something really special. Right now, as you live and breathe right now, your prayers are incense. They're not perfect. None of us pay, pray perfect prayers. And yet, they're part of the very perfect worship of God. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Do you ever think about your prayers as incense before God? Doesn't that change prayer for you? The imperfection of your prayer is incense in the bowls of the worship of the four living elders and the living creatures. And they sang a new song, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, nation and people. 
You have made them to be kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the, and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. When I heard every creature on heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That is the only right response to this today. The only right response is to recognize the eminent value and worth of God and his sacrificial lamb. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are worthy of praise. That's the end goal. I do not want you to for a moment think that this is a means to an end. Yes, it's true that this is the antidote to internal pressure to move away from God and external pressure. But that's not the end goal. God is worthy of worship. More than that, your worship is valuable. Both individually and corporately, your worship is valuable to God. It's, it's as incense before Him. He accepts it. He loves it. He requires it. But more than that, it's, it's, not, it's not only that. It's, it's not that God sits there and says, you will worship me. But rather, He does it for our delight. You were made to delight in God. Nothing else will satisfy that. Everything else that says that it can is lying. It's lying. And so the way to break the attachment of this world is to grasp the reality of the new world, that which is to come. It's necessary. It must be done. The church, for it to succeed in its mission, must have people who are not attached to this world. But more than that, it's safe. It's like a ship at harbour. Your crown of glory, your white robe, the right to stand in the presence of God is worth more than everything else in this world. And so it's necessary to break the attachment of this world. The point of all of this for John has been it doesn't matter what the church goes through because of what's before it, it's worth it. But I think we would be remiss ultimately if we just didn't stop and think about all that we've learned from John about who God is, about the glory of God, about the holiness of God, about the majesty of what it's like to exist within the throne room of God. 
it would be wrong and remiss to just boil that down to something so practical. We must respond in worship. So why don't we do that? Let's pray to God and fill that bowl of incense.